You're listening to audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where we train students to preach the word and reach the world. For more free resources like this one, visit www.swbts.edu forward slash media resources. Come with me this morning on a visit to Vanity Fair. Through the magic of time travel, when I snap my fingers, we're going back to the 10th century B.C., a little sliver of land in the Middle East. And we're there. Across the thick, lush grass of the palace lawn fall the shadows of trees transplanted from distant forests. Fish pools fed by artificial streams are perpetually ruffled with golden scales darting from water cave to water cave. Birds flutter amidst the foliage, birds brought back from foreign aviaries. Beautiful flowers spangle their rainbow colors everywhere in the royal gardens. Deer stalk the parkways. Peacocks brought back from India strut the walkways. In the distance, I hear the neighing of 4,000 horses in the royal stables, standing in blankets of Tyrian purple, chewing their bits over troughs of gold. In the royal garage, 1,400 chariots just awaiting the visit of a dignitary to be brought out on parade. His home, the palace in which he lives, would make the homes on the lifestyles of the rich and famous look like paupers' houses. In the royal cellar are thousands of flasks of the world's finest wines just waiting to be uncorked at his weekly, wild, extravagant parties. His financial portfolio is no less impressive. Gold, $600 million. Silver, $1,200,000,000. He's a shipping tycoon. His ships traverse the ocean bringing back countless priceless treasures that adorn his palace walls. He's a true Renaissance man. He's a musician. He's written over a thousand songs. He's a philosopher, author of more than 3,000 proverbs. He is interested in the study of ichthyology, ornithology, biology, and many other subjects on top of that. 700 of the most beautiful women in the world call him husband. 300 more, his concubines, all 1,000 just awaiting his beck and call to fulfill his slightest sexual whim and his wildest sexual desire. He shops at only the finest bazaars, dines at only five-star restaurants. Everywhere he goes, he's followed by more paparazzi than Elvis, Princess Diana, and Michael Jackson all combined. He's the wisest man Whoever lived, people from all around the world come to study at his feet. In fact, at his university where he is the only professor who teaches all subjects. He is truly and unbelievably remarkable. He is Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerman, and Hugh Hefner all rolled into one man. It's an amazing thing, is it not? His mother, the beautiful and ravishing Bathsheba. His father, the great and mighty king of Israel, David. You know his name. 
His name is Solomon. Today, he has promised to give us a preview of his latest and his last book. In fact, he's been kind enough to provide copies for every one of us today. You actually have a copy of it in your hand. It's called Kohelet. Well, you might not know it by its Hebrew name. Perhaps you know it better by its English name, the book of Ecclesiastes in your Bible. Oh, I see the palace doors as they open and here he comes with his royal entourage down the walkway toward the platform. His gaunt form and his royal robes and the lines of age on his face. Suddenly he just looks different to me than he did, much older than he used to look. We watch in anticipation as he makes his way down and he steps up onto the platform. We all stand in honor of the great king. He steps up to the platform, up to the podium. He surveys the scene. Quietly we are seated. We are leaning forward on the edge of our seats. What will he say? He closes his eyes and he lifts his face toward heaven. Then he raises his hands and calls out with a loud voice, Havel, Havelim, Havel, Havelim, Hakol, Havel. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Can you believe that? Did I hear him right? Did we hear him right? How could it be possible that the man who has everything, the man on whom the world exhausted itself, and yet he sums up his whole life and he says, it's all vanity. Unbelievable. How could that be? Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, makes that statement. Hevel havelim, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's a strange word, isn't it? Vanity. Oh, we think we know what it means in English. But the Hebrew word vanity, which is shot through this book of Ecclesiastes, 29 occurrences, is a very important word to camp on for just a moment because the word hevel in Hebrew, translated vanity, has a number of meanings associated with the context in which Solomon uses it and the rest of the Old Testament authors use the word. Vanity is a word in Hebrew that basically means smoke, mist, vapor, nothingness, zilch, zero, nada. It's what's left after you pop a soap bubble. That's what vanity is. And notice that Solomon says... Here in 1-2, he says, vanity of vanities. Notice the intensity of it. In Hebrew, when you want to express the superlative, you double the noun. So in Isaiah 26-3, the Bible says, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on thee. Actually, in Hebrew, it's thou wilt keep him in shalom, shalom. It doubles the word, shalom, shalom, the fullest kind of peace one can possibly have. And that's what Solomon does here. He's intensifying it by expressing it in the Hebrew super superlative, vanity of vanities. You might translate it in an English idiom, super vanity. Notice the intensity of it. Notice the universality of it. All is vanity. All things together and everything individually matters not. It's vanity. Your house is vanity. Your clothes are vanity. Your car is vanity. Your bank account is vanity. Your looks is vanity. Your abilities are vanity. Everything there is, Solomon says, in the universe is hevel. It's vanity. I don't like to hear that, do you? 
sort of grates on me, doesn't it? You see, this word hevel connotes at least five things that are very important that we understand. It's a word that describes the absurdity of life. It's a word that describes the evident contradictions, the opposites that exist together in the world. There are wolves and there are lambs. There are weeds, but there are roses. There are gentle breezes, but there are tornadoes. There's ugliness, but there is beauty. There's life, but there is death. This is the, the absurdity of it all. The word hevel incorporates that concept. Not only the absurdity of it, but the irony of it. It's a word of great irony because as Solomon lived his life, he observed the inequitable nature of life. Things don't work out and things are senseless and there's an inequitable nature to things. The cheater gets the high grade. The liar gets elected to office. The embezzler drives off in the Lexus. And the innocent are punished for the sins of the guilty. And the guilty sometimes walk away with the rewards that the good should enjoy. And Solomon says, I've looked at life and I, I see I see all of this taking place and it's the irony of it all. It's hevel, it's vanity. Then this word connotes the incomprehensibility of it all. You just can't figure it out. You put all of your reason together and it just doesn't make sense. And that's the way the world is. Everything, as Solomon says, under the sun, a phrase 30 times used in Ecclesiastes. Things looked at horizontally apart from God... There's an incomprehensibility about it. There is the limitation of reason. God has put enough reason in the universe to make faith reasonable, but he has left enough out where faith is absolutely essential. Reason will not get you where you want to go. And then the word hevel involves, when he says vanity of vanities, hevel, havelim, the word hevel there involves the randomness of everything. The evil prosper and the good guy loses his life. There, there's just a, a certain randomness. I had to learn a new word when my two girls, who are now 23 and 25 years of age, but when they were teenagers, one day we were sitting at the dinner table and I said something and one of my daughters said to me, she was about 14 years old, she said, Dad, that's so random. Well, I thought I knew what the word random meant, but I had to learn a new vocabulary with teenage girls. The randomness of life. And then ultimately the word connotes the futility of life. Because Solomon says, you know what? It doesn't matter whether you're Mother Teresa or Osama bin Laden. You're all going to the same place. You're going into the grave. And I know that you're young today and you don't want to think about it. And I didn't either. When I was your age, I never thought about it. I don't think about dying. got my whole life in front of me. Solomon says, you better think about dying and you better think about it now. Because if the Lord tarries is coming, the day is coming when every one of us will step foot in the grave, the futility of it all. You will die. The people who bury you will die. The shovel used to bury you will turn to dust. And so one day I'll, I'll die and you'll come to my funeral. And you'll see me buried. They'll lower me into the ground, sprinkle some dirt, and then you'll leave. You'll go over to my house for a moment and you'll talk. You'll eat potato salad. And you'll say, you know, Dr. Allen, he was dean over there at Southwestern, wasn't he? Yeah. I think I heard him preach once or twice, yeah. 
And then suddenly somebody will say, oh, look at the time. I've got a, an appointment to get my hair done. And somebody else says, you know, I've got to get back to the office. And then one other will turn to another and say, how about them cowboys? What do you think they're going to do? Isn't it sad what happened to the rangers? And I will have been honored for an hour and forgotten forever. And so will you. Hevel Havelim, Hevel Havelim, Hakol Havel. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. Life is supposed to be a symphony. It's not. It's a cacophony. Lived under the sun. The disappointment of pursuit. You go after it, you go after it, you go after it. But then when you finally get it, there's a dissatisfaction in the enjoyment of it. You can't enjoy it. When you're old, you want to be young. When you're young, you want to be older. When you're retired, you wish you were working again. When you're working, you wish you were retired. Nothing satisfies. When something, one item is filled in your life, one vacancy, something other vacancy, another vacancy appears. And there's a secret poison that constantly works in our lives. And we can't figure it all out. It's Hevel. It's Hevel Havelane. Solomon. Solomon's Ecclesiastes is like dragging your fingernails down a blackboard. He's got a serious case of the blues, doesn't he? Like a blues singer on the mud-slung docks of the Mississippi River. Said, I searched for wisdom, but the girl done turned up wrong. Said, I searched for wisdom, but the girl done turned up wrong. Gave me mighty fearful contusions, make me toss all night long. That's Solomon's world of vanity. And remember, this is the wisest man, the richest man, a thousand wives, all the money in the universe, at his beck and call, all servants. And yet, he sums it up at the end of his life. Hevel, Havelaim. You know what Solomon did? He tells us in chapter 2, he gives us a brief preview of the book. He surveys for us the five major areas where he sought for meaning and purpose in life. You read it in chapter 2. We'll not have time to look at all of these verses. But first of all, Solomon sought it in wisdom, intellectualism. In 1, 16 through 18. In 2, 12 through 17. Read it and you'll see. Here is the wisest man, the man of great knowledge, the scholar. And so he puts on, he dons the scholar's robe, and he becomes a great student and a great professor. And yet Solomon finds that to him philosophy is a dead-end street. has a sign there that says dead-end. Philosophy alone cannot help him get to God. In fact, Solomon says, the more you know, the more you hurt. That's my translation, paraphrase of it. You read what he says at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. He says, increasing knowledge brings increasing sorrow. Now, you may find that difficult to believe at this age in your life. So did I when I was your age because knowledge was what I wanted. But I can just tell you the more you know, the more sorrowful you are. And the more you realize you don't know, the horizons of your knowledge are always the frontiers of your ignorance. Never forget that. And you think you're going to find meaning and purpose in knowledge and in wisdom. But knowledge and wisdom alone will not be able to fulfill that need in your life. You'll never find it. We know more than the dog knows, but we can no more find our way to heaven on our own than the dog can. Knowledge and wisdom alone will never make it happen. 
So Solomon left his dusty, musty study and intellectualism, and he went out into the world of hedonism, and he found him some women, a thousand of them to be exact, the most beautiful dolls on planet Earth, drop-dead gorgeous, to fulfill all of his sexual needs. Have you noticed how our country and our world is obsessed with sex? Everything. We're just totally obsessed with sex. So Solomon tried women. He tried wisdom. It didn't help him to get where he wanted to go. He tried women, hedonism, all the sex you could want in any way you want it with a thousand of the most beautiful women in the universe. And it brought him no peace, no fulfillment. And oh, by the way, ladies, you are lovely today. Physically, you're lovely today. Do not forget Proverbs 31.30 where this same man, Solomon, says beauty is hevel. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And then Solomon said that didn't work, so he tried wine. He said, if I can drink this, smoke this, snort this, shoot this, if I can get drunk over there, if I can enjoy these wild parties, then somehow it's going to bring me peace and fulfillment. You know what he found out? At the end of every needle and to the bottom of every bottle, he found an abyss of insanity. And you never find purpose, meaning peace and fulfillment in wine. And then Solomon said, well, let me try wealth. And so he amassed all kinds of wealth. It's unbelievable. You heard me mention a moment ago. And by the way, all of those descriptions of Solomon came directly from the Old Testament. You scour the Old Testament, everything that's said about him, and you'll find everything I told you is absolutely true. All of that wealth, the opulence, unbelievable. He had it all. Materialism. Just like so many Americans today and so many people in our world are searching for meaning and purpose in a larger salary, a better job, a bigger home, a newer car, nicer clothes, the top of the line iPhone. And if I can just get these things, if I can possess these things, then somehow I'm going to make it. Somehow I'm going to be successful. Well, but in the fall of 2008 with the demise of the stock market and the fall of Lehman Brothers all of the way through today, we have discovered that wealth is a pipe dream. Wealth can easily be taken away. You can't put all of your eggs in the basket of wealth. Solomon sought to do that. You can't do it. And then he said, I'll try work. So he became a workaholic. And we read in chapter 2, he built this, he built that. He threw himself into his work like some of you throwing yourself into your work, thinking that I can just find meaning and fulfillment in my work. But Solomon says, it was another dead end street. Vanity of vanities, Hebrew, uh, Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, Solomon says, all is vanity. He sailed the high seas of life making many charts and graphs. And he took along his digital camera with him. And he took all of these snapshots and posted them on Facebook for us to see in Ecclesiastes. Here's Solomon the gourmand, click. Here's Solomon the playboy, click. Here's Solomon the intellectual, click. Here's Solomon the wise, click. Here's Solomon the drunk, click. 
And he posts them on his Facebook page called Ecclesiastes. And he discovered that the world promises more than it can ever deliver. The title page is more interesting than the contents of the book. And the more Solomon was gratified, the less he was satisfied. The more he gratified himself, the less was he satisfied. You better learn that in life. You better hear what Solomon says. Well, why drag us through this? Solomon, why do you do this? Why are you, why are you dragging us through these relentless salvos of pessimism that pour from the pages of Ecclesiastes? Hevel, hevel, hevel. The reason he's doing it is because a knowledge of error shortens the road to truth. And Solomon says, I want you to see and understand the error of my ways. I want you to understand, you young folks today, all of us, and all of us would be young compared to him. Now he's been gone for a long time. I want you all to understand today, Solomon says, that it's all vanity. Your looks are vanity. Your car is vanity. Your house is vanity. Your scholarship is vanity. Everything. It's all vanity. Solomon is looking at everything under the sun, that phrase that occurs 30 times in this book. It means he's looking at life horizontally. He is looking at it from the perspective of the secularist. He is looking at the way things are if you don't know God and you don't factor God into the equation. Here's what you get. You get the incomprehensibility of it, the irony of it, the futility of it. That's what you get. The meaninglessness of it, you get Hevel, Solomon says. That's what you get. The grand delusion is pursuing peace and fulfillment and meaning, pursuing life and all of that without God. Oh, the grand delusion that all people who don't know Christ are experiencing today as they are in that headlong rush. We see this vanity reflected everywhere in our culture, don't we? We see it in our literature. Chesterton in his George Bernard Shaw says, All is vanity, life is dust, and love is ashes. Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher, said, We are bubbles of nothingness on a sea of emptiness. Mark Twain said, Man lives in a world where he's honored for an hour, and then he's forgotten forever. But no one said it any better than did Thomas Gray. Our hearts are muffled drums beating funeral dirges to the grave. They're all simply saying the same thing Solomon is saying in the inspired Word of God. Hevel, havelain, vanity of vanities. You hear it in our music. Elvis Costello, if you like him. Nonsense prevails, modesty fails, grace and virtue turn into stupidity. What shall we do with all this useless beauty? Or maybe you prefer Bob Dylan, a little more in Dr. Patterson's generation. In his song, Idiot Wind, now everything's a little upside down. As a matter of fact, the wheels have stopped. What's good is bad. What's bad is good. You'll find out when you reach the top, you're on the bottom. Or maybe you'd rather, maybe your tune is Metallica. Maybe you'd rather hear it from them and their music fade to black. Life, it seems, will fade away, drifting further every day, getting lost within myself. Nothing matters, no one else. I've lost the will to live, simply nothing more to give. There's nothing more for me. Need the end to set me free. Hevel, Havilain, vanity of vanities. Maybe you prefer Courtney Love's band. 
the song used once and destroy. It's the emptiness that follows you down. It's the ache inside when it all burns out. Or maybe you too and Bono is more to your taste. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or maybe you would rather hear it from Lady Gaga or Christina Aguilera or from Whale, the rapper. Maybe you'd rather hear it from them. I had to edit these lyrics. They're so filthy that I could not possibly read them here today. Lady Gaga, midnight at the Glamour show on Sunday night. Everybody drank a lot of whiskey and wine. We dance like no tomorrow. We're on burlesque time, but everybody's got got to work tomorrow at nine. Touch me, touch me, baby, but don't mess up my hair. Love me, love me crazy, but don't get too attached. This is a brief affair. Vanity, pictures in magazines, movie screens. Vanity, there's a camera, so many beauty queens. Vanity, it's so good to be fabulous and glamorous. We love ourselves and no one else. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Or maybe you like Christine Aguilera's lyrics to the song Vanity. I'm not cocky, I just love myself. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the flyest? And I'm editing lots of words out of here. Filthy words. Of them all, never mind, I am. Yeah, I am. If I were her, I would kiss me. Every day I see myself, I love me even more. It's me I adore. I'm the best for sure. V is for vanity. Every time I look at me, I turn myself on. Yeah, I turn myself on. V is for vanity. Thank you, Mom and Daddy, because I turn myself on. Let us not forget who owns the throne. And then the song ends with her five-year-old son at the end of the song and answering the question, who owns the throne? You do, Mommy. No, no, Christina, you don't own the throne. Jesus owns the throne. He's the one on the throne. You don't own that throne. Or maybe you'd rather hear, I can't do rap, but in whale, some of the lyrics. I promise it comes with guilt. How awesome is this narcissism? You save your hard earnings to pay for these opinions. Now, look at me, look at me, how much vanity do you see? Look at me, look at me, how much vanity do you see? All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for the daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere. Went to school and I was very nervous. No one knew me, no one knew me. Hello, teacher, tell me what's my lesson. Look right through me, look right through me. Now look at me, look at me, how much vanity do you see? Now look at me, look at me, how much vanity do you see? Maybe you'd rather see it in advertising. Calvin Klein. I'll just take the time to give you that one. Calvin Klein sold us when we were baby boomers. He sold us obsession because we are obsessed with ourselves. And then when we got a little older, he sold us passion because we needed some passion. And then when our children of baby boomers came along, he sold us a new brand. He sold them a new brand called Contradiction, all of which were huge sellers of perfume and cologne. MasterCard had their favorite advertisement for years. There are some things that money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. And the most egregious one of all 10 years ago was Volvo, the automobile advertisement. They said our newest 
and greatest safety venture yet, a Volvo that can save your soul. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher Solomon. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon is writing for the student who conceives, convinced that her world hinges on the next paper and the next exam. He's writing for the pastor who thinks that if he can just get in that church and it's a decent-sized church, that he'll have meaning and purpose and significance in his life. Nothing like Ecclesiastes to immunize us from the epidemic of taking life under the sun too seriously. Solomon says, I'm going to rub your noses in reality in Ecclesiastes. And that's exactly what he does. Nothing you learn, nothing you know, nothing you do, Solomon says, will ever bring you happiness. Period. Under the sun. That's the way it works. Solomon forces us to think with the mental cap of the secularist. Move out of your theocentric world for a moment as a theologian, as a student at Southwestern Seminary, and imagine what the world would be like. Pretend there's no God, no Christ, no cross, no resurrection, and that's what you would be facing right here. But don't stay under the sun too long because you'll get heat stroke. But every now and then in this book, if you read it carefully, Solomon is not the pessimist you think he is. He may be a bit of a pessimist along the way, but he's certainly no atheist. And Solomon is explaining to us in this book that if you live life only on the horizontal, you do it without God, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. The horizontal approach to life is hevel. It's meaningless. It cannot meet the needs of your life. The vertical approach is what matters. It's God. It's God that matters. Life's like a puzzle, isn't it? You know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we sort of have a family tradition. We'll buy a puzzle and we'll set it up in the house and we'll work on it between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Have you ever bought a puzzle and you got it nearly completed only to discover that about a dozen pieces were missing? And so you put it all back in the box and you take it back to where you bought it and you buy the identical puzzle, a new puzzle, you come back, you put it together and guess what? A dozen pieces, different pieces this time are missing. And frustrated and angry, you go back and you turn it in and you tell them if you do this to me again, I'm going to raise havoc. And they give you another puzzle, you come home and only to find 12 different pieces and this puzzle are missing. That's the way life is under the sun. The puzzles always have missing pieces. Apart from God, it's just the way it works. You better not expect anything else or anything differently. That's the way it is, and that's how it's going to happen. Solomon is saying, Hevel, Havelim, Hakol, Havel. That's vanity. You're not going to make it work. You ever played spades? When I was a youth minister, we, I used to love to play spades. You know, when you play spades, the spades, the cards that are spades... They're the trump cards. A two of spades can trump an ace of diamonds. Don't try to play spades with God because you will discover quickly He is sovereign and He holds all the trumps in His hands. And you've got nothing. Hevel, Havalim, Hakol, Havel, so says Solomon. Well, David, it's pretty pessimistic. It's pretty... This is a downer, David. Well, wait a minute. 
Did you notice how Solomon ends the book? Look at chapter 12 and verse 8. He ends the book with almost the very same statement in which he begins. And in fact, this is a literary device called inclusio. It's sort of a sandwich structure. Notice that Ecclesiastes 1, 2 and Ecclesiastes 12a is the exact same statement. Everything Solomon says that he shows us in between these two statements, he shows us is a house of mirrors. All your wealth, all your wisdom, all your wine, all your women, all your work, and everything associated with it, Solomon says, it's a house of mirrors. Nothing we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. Don't be duped into believing that age is going to fulfill for you the promises of youth, because I can tell you at the young age of 56, it will not. It will not. It's just not how it works. So Solomon says, oh, but now wait. I'm not through. Don't miss the end of my sermon, Solomon says. Look at verse 9. In fact, verses 9 and following are the key to the book because apart from what we are told by Solomon in these verses, we would be in major trouble, wouldn't we? But look at what he says in verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people. He taught them knowledge. He pondered, he searched out, he arranged many Proverbs. I want you to notice that all of the verbs in the Hebrew of verse 9 are in the PL stem. What that means, if you haven't had Hebrew yet, is they're in their intense. The intensity of it is what is brought out. What Solomon is saying, he didn't just ponder, he pondered diligently. He didn't just search, he searched deeply. He didn't just arrange, he arranged carefully. He pondered to weigh words carefully, to sift through their implications, to understand truth. That's what you ought to be doing if you want to be a good student. He pondered carefully like a dog wrestling with a bone on the front porch. Have you ever watched a dog do that? For 30 minutes he'll lie there and he will gnaw on that bone from every conceivable angle in order to extract from that bone the slightest, tiniest piece of meat. He'll gnaw, 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 gnaw. That's the Hebrew word picture that's in this word to search, to ponder diligently, to search out diligently. You're on a quest. You're on a search. By the way, some translate Kohelet as the searcher. There's a nuance of that in the Hebrew word Kohelet, translated preacher or searcher. And then Solomon says he arranged. That means he he artistically arranged. Careful investigation. Composing and arranging of his words in the book of Ecclesiastes to teach us wisely today. There's a great picture, isn't it? Portrait of a scholar. Portrait of a preacher. Portrait of a professor. Research, editing, creative writing, teaching. Here's what we ought to be. And by the way, although this is a little off the beaten path, but let's be PL Christians. Let's be passionate about Christ. Let's be passionate about the things of God. Let's don't just be cow Christians. Let's be PL Christians. Let's be PL professors. Let's teach with some zeal and passion. Let's be PL students who work and study diligently to pay the price, being the best we can be, fulfilling our Lord's mandate to us that he expects our very best. Let us be PL preachers that preach the word of God and preach Jesus with passion. That's what we need. Solomon said, I didn't just do these things. I did them with intensity. And verse 10, 
The preacher sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly. Delightful, easy to grasp, easily applied is the meaning of the word. Words that are yashar, upright words used to describe an attribute of words. And then words of truth, the objective truth of those words. And we're connecting that truth with words that are skilled and pleasing to hearers so that we can put those together. And God, the Holy Spirit, drives the truth of his word home to our hearts. Our goal should be what C.S. Lewis said, every preacher ought to liken himself to an adjective striving to modify the noun of truth. That's who we are. Verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads. <laughs> That's motivation. The ox goad, poke that ox, move him along so the plow can move. That's motivation. And they're like nails. That's foundation. They're like nails that were used to drive in the shepherd's tent so that in the midst of the wind, it would not blow away. Words of the wise like goads, masters of these collections like well-driven nails. Oh, and they're given, look at it, by one shepherd. <laughs> Capital S, one shepherd. You see, when you put New Testament glasses on and read through Ecclesiastes, this last chapter, you discover that this is a picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. This is a statement about the inspiration of Scripture. This is a statement about the authority of Scripture. Solomon says these things are given by one shepherd. Verse 12, but beyond this, oh yeah, beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless. And excessive devotion to body, to books, is wearying to the body. Well, 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 welcome to the student's verse in Scripture. There's your verse right there. Of the making of many books, there is no end. The Library of Congress houses 33 million catalog volumes and 300 million other data material, print material. In 2003, there were 300,000 books published in the United States. They're telling us that in 2013, by the end of this year, they're estimating there will be 15 million published because of e-publishing and everything else. Of the making of many books, there's no end. This is just a few of all the books there are in the universe. It's unbelievable. There's some interesting books here. William Reynolds taught here, Hymns of Our Faith. Great book. Ha. Here's Terry Wilder's Lost Sermons of the Scottish Baptist, Peter Grant. Fascinating book. Bajo la luz from Gerardo Alfaro, Dr. Gerardo Alfaro. Fascinating little book, Enter the Light. Look at all these books. Paul Hoskins, the scripture might be fulfilled, Theology and the Death of Christ. Great book. Kevin Kennedy, Union with Christ and the Extent of the Atonement. Another fascinating book. Ah, oh, here's a good one. Craig Blazing, Progressive Dispensationalism. I want this one. Revelation by Paige Patterson. <laughs> Never heard of him. Oh, now here's a great one. Look at this. Hebrews by David Allen. <laughs> you know, you know that Revelation is twice as long as Hebrews, right? Take a look at that. <laughs> what does that tell you? Of the making of books, there is no end. 
You can read, read, read all of your life, but you'll never find meaning in life. Information, information, information of the making of books. There's no end. That's all they are. Information everywhere. Information and more information. But there is only one book that brings transformation, and that's the Word of the living God. And here's your textbook at Southwestern Seminary. Yes, you want to read all these books, including the ones I wrote, but they're all nothing compared to the book. Sir Walter Scott lay dying. His nephew stood by his bed. He said, son, bring me the book. He said, uncle, you have thousands of books in your library. Which one? And Sir Walter Scott said, son, there's only one book. Bring me the Bible. There's only one book. Ultimately, there's only one textbook here at Southwestern. You'll read a lot of books. I tell my preaching students that we go, you're going to be a scholar, pastor, and you're going to read three books for the rest of your life every week. And they look at me like you're looking at me now like a calf looking at a new gate. But if you're going to even barely, barely keep up, you've got to read three books for the rest, every week for the rest of your life. Three books a week. Ah, but now he closes verse 13 and 14. Don't miss it. In Hebrew, it reads like this, end. And the word end in Hebrew has a, is capitalized. Your Bible says the conclusion. In Hebrew, it reads end. When all has been heard, here it comes. Fear God and do what he says. Keep his command. This applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Isn't that amazing? Solomon says, all right, I've dragged you through all of this under the sun. Now let me tell you what it's all about. Here it is. Sum it up. Here's the lesson for the day. Here endeth the lesson, Solomon says. Fear God and obey God. That's the way you overcome life's meaninglessness. That's the way you overcome your own uselessness in life when it's all said and done. Fear God and do what he says. Solomon says, this is the whole. The word duty is not in the text. This is the whole of man. You're fractured now. Sin did that to you. Adam and Eve did that to us. And then we did it to ourselves because we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. But that's not God's intended end. The whole plan of salvation is to bring us back to the one who made us to take what has been fractured and make us whole. And the only way that can ever possibly happen is when you obey what Solomon says here, the conclusion, when all is said and done, fear God. Listen, if you fear God, you'll fear no one else. And if you don't fear God, you'll fear everyone else. Fear God and do what he says. Fear God. There's the initiation of the pathway. Do what he says. There's traveling down the pathway. You fear God and you do what he says. You obey his commands. This applies to every person. And don't miss verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You see, here's what happens, and I'm almost through. Solomon says... In a whole book, his house of mirrors called Ecclesiastes, you get the impression over and over and over, hevel, hevel, hevel. You get the impression that he say, nothing matters. But you come to the end and he totally reverses it. He pulls the rug out from under you and he says, with God, everything matters. Listen to our Savior, Solomon would say to us today, 
He says that simple things like one word, the hair on your head, a sparrow that falls, a cup of cold water, God, with God, everything matters. And we are going to give an account to him. And Solomon says that will hallow your days and strengthen your darkness and bring you through when you realize that though you can't understand it and you can't figure it out and there are puzzles, pieces of the puzzle that are missing in your life and in the world, yet if you will do these two things, fear God and keep his commandments, you will know what it's all about. He or she who gives himself or herself to the one who said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. There is meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. It is through and only through Jesus Christ and no other. A visit to Vanity Fair. Billy Barnes wrote the words in 1957. It's a song that's been sung many times since. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I wanted the music to play on forever. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I wanted the clown to be constantly clever. Have I stayed too long at the fair? I bought me blue ribbons to tie up my hair, but I couldn't find anybody to care. The merry-go-round is beginning to taunt me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? The music has stopped and the children must go now. Have I stayed too long at the fair? Oh, mother dear, I know you're very proud. Your little girl in gingham is so far above the crowd. No, daddy dear, you never could have known that I would be successful yet so very much alone. I wanted to live in a carnival city with laughter and love everywhere. I wanted my friends to be thrilling and witty. I wanted somebody to care. I found my blue ribbons all shiny and new, but now I discover them no longer blue. The merry-go-round is beginning to taunt me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? There's nothing to win and there's no one to want me. Have I stayed too long at the fair? Southwestern, whatever you do, whatever you do now and through the rest of your life, don't stay too long at Vanity Fair, but rather enlist in the service of him who said, I am the resurrection and alive. He who believes in me will never die. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you want more information on our academic programs, or if you would like to support our mission, visit www.swbts.edu.